Well, all right. Good morning, good afternoon, and good evening. It's the Here Comes the Pain podcast. I'm your host, Joel Payne. We're presented by Hip Politics Network. Lots of great content there. Would encourage you to check out. Follow the show on Instagram at Here Comes the Pain Pod. That's at Here Comes the Pain, P O D. Follow me on Twitter at P A Y N E D C. That's at Payne DC. I'm back, friends. I took a little hiatus, as I told you last time, but back with a special episode here. A lot has happened in the political world in the last few weeks, and we will get to it in today's conversation. But I'm so eager to get to today's conversation because this is going to be the listeners getting a chance to listen to me just chatted up with one of my favorite people and one of my best friends, um, not just somebody who I've worked with before, but somebody who is one of the smarter people in politics who I've ever met and just an all around good friend, great person. Um, her name is Erin Skinner Cochran. She is the founder of Iced Coffee, Please. And she also is the former director of new media for Harry Reid's Senate Majority Leadership Office, which she and I were colleagues together about 12 years ago. And she's also a former communications director for Madeline Albright at Stonebridge Albright Group. So she's got a lot of affiliations behind her name. Uh, but the most important one is she is my friend. Aaron, what is going on? So, so excited to be here. Thank you so much. I'm super excited to have you. And I think the first thing that the listeners should know is I rarely call you Aaron. Um, I call you the escape key for a very simple reason, because your initials, you're Aaron Skinner, but by marriage, you're Aaron Skinner Cochran. And you got married about two weeks before we started working together in Harry Reid's office. And we were in new new employee class together on Capitol Hill that first day. <laughs> That's right. We were in new employee class together. And it was like Aaron Skinner Cochran. I was like, oh, like the escape key. And that's how, and Aaron knows that that is how I refer to her, um, and uh, and I'm just so excited to have her here. We were, it's it's almost like Aaron and I have these regular conversations, and we were eager to kind of get it on tape because we wanted to just share our uh, memories of working together and relate it to what's going on today. So again, Aaron and I worked together in Harry Reid's Senate Majority Leadership Office. 2009. I ended in 2011. I think, Aaron, I think you may have ended a little bit later. How, when, when were you there until? Yeah, just about a little bit later. Yeah, a little bit later. And I guess I want to start the conversation there. And I want to start the conversation there because we're, we are, you know, we're kind of looking through the looking glass now. Joe Biden is the president-elect. He's going to be the president in about 40 some odd days. And I see a lot of comparison to where we are now in terms of about to into a world where Democrats lead the White House, they, they're going to lead the House. They're not going to they're, they're very unlikely to lead the Senate. You know, we're all very hopeful about what's going to happen in Georgia, but that's a tough race. But Democrats are almost going to have the same, you know, a, a similar situation to what they had in 2009, stepping into government they're going to have in 2021. And I guess just first from you, Aaron, just thinking about now versus then, just tell me a little bit about what goes through your mind. The first thing that really comes to mind for me is if I had to say to good old Joe what he needs to do is exactly what I think Obama thought he needed to do, which is fixing and healing. And I'm from the South, so we would say fixing and healing. <laughs> it's right. I mean, Obama was handed a mess. What we thought then was just about the biggest mess you could be handed. And this is just obviously on another level. 
with Joe. The healing, you know, I think what we didn't know back then was we were stepping into terrain where the Tea Party was at that point starting to have its rumbles. You know, we'd gone through the Sarah Palin mess. And now it feels like everything is so much more extreme, which we could not have known back then. And so is it possible for Biden to heal? I think he can try and chip away at the fixing part. Can he do the healing part? And think about also from a communications and press perspective, the challenges he faced on the campaign will be the same for the next six, nine, probably 12 months for him in that he can't glad hand the people. He can't hug people and heal them in the way that Joe Biden is so innately powerful and good at. And we all need that right now in this country, right? Some arms around us. And I think Obama was good at doing the healing with words, never quite the sort of physical comfort. And I think we're in a period right now where we kind of need both. But that's going to be a challenge. Yeah. And, you know, it's so interesting that you kind of draw that parallel because it's like I think of Biden, if you had to think of what his hope and change is, right? Obama was hope and change. You know, Biden is heal and unite. Um, and um, we are both they, they, they are you know, Joe Biden is going to enter his presidency similar to Barack Obama at a crisis point. Um, and they're both economic crises brought on by, frankly, Republican mismanagement. Let's just call it what it is. Um, I also think what's interesting is you bring up the point about Obama never really loved the nitty gritty of kind of like D.C. cocktail hour, mixing it up, you know, slapping people on the back oh, because Obama was this kind of erudite. You know, um, Chicago Midwesterner who was always a little bit of an alien. Um, and I mean that actually as a compliment to Washington, D.C. Um, that probably, um, you know, speaks for his mainstream cross country appeal and that he wasn't a character of D.C. Joe Biden. Yes, he's Uncle Joe from Scranton, but Joe Biden is as D.C. as it gets. And so his approach to governing. Let's talk about that a little bit, because frankly, Joe Biden's approach to governing is very similar to our former boss, Harry Reid. Dig up, you know, kind of roll up your sleeves and kind of dig in. Um, And, you know, I was just it's so funny, Aaron. I was talking to a former colleague of ours about just thinking about, like, would you ever thought in like 2009 that like Joe Biden would be president? And again, I don't I don't even say that as like a slight. It's just it's wow. It's, It's such a different world. Um, and as the listeners can probably hear, my dog is um, having fun with himself over in the corner. They all know Roscoe very well. So uh, that's what's going on. I'm not my stomach's not growling. That's my dog growling in the corner. But anyways, Arid, talk a little bit about that, about kind of the, the, you know, kind of Joe Biden expand on that. Him being kind of this figure and this avatar of Washington, D.C. I would also say, you know, if we draw the comparison, if I kind of make it analogous to a meal, You know, I feel like Obama was the person who was like, we're going to do a three-course meal here. We got the nice appetizer, we got another salad in there, we got an entree, and then we've got dessert. And that was sort of like, if you think about back to 2009, it's like, Lily led better act. Okay, that was just sort of the sprinkling, the beginning of it all. Then he's like, we're going to do don't ask, don't tell. We're going to do the recovery act. We're going to do health care. We're going to try to reform the financial regulatory system. It was a lot. And everybody, when we were in Congress on the Senate side, was going, what in the hell is he thinking? You know, this body does not move that fast. And frankly... By design. By design. Exactly. And then, do the American people even kind of handle change at that pace? I think 
it's not to say people don't want that change, but are they ready for it coming at them at that speed? And I think Joe Biden is sort of like the basics of the food pyramid. He's kind of approaching things with the world as it is. And I, that's why I sort of think um, man for the moment in a way. And I'm looking at these cabinet picks right now and I'm thinking I, it's a pretty good mix. You know, there's obviously some picks that were, it's not to say these people are not qualified, but certainly they fit the political moment, the request people are making. Um, but then I think there are other folks who just, I mean, tested through and through over the last 20 years. And that's what you need when America's gone through hell and back. And it will continue to until January 20th. Still Here Comes the Pain podcast. I'm your host, Joel Payne. I'm here with my good friend, Aaron Skinner Cochran of Ice Coffee, please. And um, Aaron and I are just kind of talking about the times when we worked together about 12 years ago in Senate Majority Leader Harry Reid's office and comparing that to today. Aaron, when I introduced you, um, the title that I um, talked about from Senator Reid's office was Director of New Media. And it, that probably just sounds like gobbledygook to some people. Like, tell tell the listeners, what does that mean? Direct, what, were, what was your job back then? then? Oh, gosh, it sounds so ridiculous. But back then, honestly, there was such a divide and fragmentation in the way media was seen from a communications role. And my job was really to manage, quote, unquote, the blogger community for Senator Reid. He was up for re-election in Nevada. He had a stiff race coming up, and he had problems with the progressive left, real problems. He never engaged with them. And here you had, were sitting at a time when Huffington Post had was just growing like crazy, talking points memo, daily costs, you name it. These people had a lot of power. And the question really was, I think, around sort of um, traditional media folks. Well, they're not the same as the Post or the Times. And, Okay, but they were coming up. And so I was hired really to try and make inroads with that community and try and help the blogger community at the time understand the constraints as well as the power of the majority leader's office. The blogger, Aaron, Aaron, hold on. The blogger community. community. The blogger community, which is what we call, which is, which is, I mean, just, I want to make it plain for people. Like what we're really just talking about is like Twitter. Like that was... That was before people kind of thought about like it, re- reporters. It was more rare for them to be on Twitter. It was um, you. You, as we were um, kind of getting ready to record, you were telling a story about how one press availability. There was a pretty well-known reporter now who was about to tweet what Harry Reid just said, and everybody looked at him like literally, you know, like he had three heads. Uh, it it just it, it just the fact that like the title was director of new media. It, it really almost kind of sounds like a carve-out. Like, well, you're not really, like, earned media press. You're new media. It's different. It's fascinating to me just to think about how much that has changed, how central the what used to be known as the blogger community but really has been kind of like the Democratic Party going online, the progressive movement going online, how central that was to Joe Biden winning this time around. Because I would say he won in a way, frankly, that Hillary Clinton wasn't able to win four years ago. I'd also say, you know, setting aside Joe for a minute, when I look at a a sort of real campaign centered around the the actual new media of today and a good approach was Buttigieg. Because I think with Liz Smith, she said, obviously, let's get you anywhere and everywhere because nobody knows you as a small town mayor from Indiana. So would that approach have worked for Joe? Probably not exactly in the same way, 
But the idea that you should be in a fashion magazine, which he really was getting interviewed there, as much as he was on all these random tiny little podcasts that had political followings of different bents, some conservative, some progressive, made 20, 30 minutes for them. I mean, it all builds on itself, especially when you have a long tail like a presidential campaign. Yeah, it's it's really um, just something else. I think the Buttigieg example is a good one. Um, but it's so interesting that, like, Biden was able to win in the primary without real, you know, you don't think of Joe Biden as kind of like this master of new media uh, or master of, you know, here I go using that, like, term, but master of kind of like, you know, the the progressive online space. And I would say a differentiator for Joe Biden this time around was his ability to, like, harness that energy online and to turn it out in a way that he had to differently than any other Democratic nominee, any other presidential candidate before, because we're in this pandemic era where people aren't able to be physically together. Everything is a is a, a Zoom chat like you and I are sitting here staring at each other through a camera right now. Or it, it wasn't you, you couldn't do a 70,000 person event in uh, Seattle. Right. Like the sleepless summer event that Howard Dean did back in the day or stuff like that. That stuff doesn't exist anymore. So they had to adjust on the fly. And actually, I think it's probably to me that in their paid media, their ads, probably the best thing they did. I don't know how much you paid attention to that and if you can speak to that. But I thought it was like the best thing that the Biden folks did this time around. Totally agree. And I also think it's it's remarkable about Biden that if you think about it, he's really like a preacher without his congregation right now. And yet, he still could do that with digital media. And I think, you know, for anybody who's got a boss who's running for office, it's got to be, you know, whether you're all the way down in the D.C. level, we're talking about advisory neighborhood commission level, all the way up to president of the United States. Right now, how do you convey the authenticity of your boss? How do you get them to feel like they can interact like you and I are right now? A lot of that is just about pure self-confidence. Yeah. You know, I can try to imagine if we were had to go through this right now with Harry Reid back in 2009. <laughs> oh, dear. I mean, my God. You know, the man would have been like, what the hell is this shit? <laughs> However, I yeah. will say he was nothing but himself at all times. Which is, I mean, authenticity is... what what, But so interesting, Aaron, because this, what we're talking about, it pulls out authenticity in a way that, like, no other medium can, right? Like... I mean, you can tell pretty quickly if someone's comfortable in their own skin, if they have like a clear public persona, like nothing like kind of, you know, the, with the space that we're talking about, nothing pulls that out and nothing clarifies that, like that attention and, and um, you know, the, the need to build, build that footprint in that program. I used to work for Congresswoman Barbara Lee, my little, my new media moment, you know, I'm a traditional, I'm an old, I'm an old man in media. Um, the, my thing was, and you remember this, Aaron, I started her Twitter account. She didn't have a Twitter account before. I mean, you know, that was a long time ago. That was nine, 10 years ago, but like you would never have a public official that wouldn't have a Twitter account right now. And that was like a thing that I had to be like, yeah, you need to be on Twitter and you need to be engaging. That's where the conversations are. That's the easiest way for you to get to your constituents and how to get through the media filter. So, mm-hmm. you know, um, yeah. You, you, know, you, Phil, one of the things I'm really wondering about how this is going to go down for next year with, with Biden is when I look at this, this Congress and only 20-something members have actually said, all right, Joe got elected, which is just a travesty, and it's infuriating, it's unfair, it's outrageous. Setting all that aside, all right, how brass tacks, 
how's he going to get stuff done? This is a man who, if anybody can get something done, it's Joe. And he was the one who Obama would, would tap on the shoulder and say, I need you to go down and I need you to work with Mitch on something. And he'd try and make it happen. You know, I just feel like I still have my doubts as to whether or not that's going to be possible. But if it is, then I worry about the progressive left. Yeah. Are we going to allow for that? Yeah. Are we going to create the space? Are we going to hammer him? Aaron, I want to talk about that more in a bit, but just to kind of answer that point right now, I it, it this happened quicker than I thought it would where the attention got off Donald Trump real quick and it became kind of like the fight on the left, which I want to get to right now because you and I are, I, I don't know if you kind of think this, someone asked me what was the crowning achievement of my career recently. One of my, you know, I, I, I work in um, the private sector and someone asked me, you know, what was your crowning achievement? I was like, oh, it was like helping to pass Obamacare. I mean, that was it, right? The Affordable Care Act and all the work that went into that and all the hours and the sweat and tears. And God knows it wasn't perfect legislation. And there's some things about the process that looking back, um, I wish would have been done differently. But I want to talk about that a little bit, Aaron. So um, obviously we talked about just being in the Senate leadership and doing that work. Tell me about your memories of kind of the Obamacare fight, particularly from your perspective as someone who were, was dealing with this very unwieldy progressive community online. Man, you know, it's the same today that it was then in the sense that no matter what education is done for whether it's members of the media or advocates about the legislative process and how ugly it can be and what it takes to get something truly passed in a body as complex as ours. Um, I still think people think there's an easy fix to it. And I know a big part of that conversation remains today about the filibuster. And that's certainly something we need to explore. And I think Reed, obviously, right? He's come down on on the side of let's get rid of it. That's a big deal, by the way. Most people don't realize that's a big deal. I remember back in 2009 and 2010, Ryan Graham from HuffPost really pushing on that. And here we are 10 years later, it still hasn't happened, and yet you've got the former Senate Majority Leader saying, it's time, it's well past time. The place is ground to a halt. So setting that aside, I think I worry a lot about a culture we live in right now, it almost goes beyond the press, whether you're left or right, where ultimately we want quick fixes, but what we really want is just, damn it, what we want. Yeah. And we, we don't really believe in... Um, shades of gray and I don't know what we do about that you know as a mom of three kids it's like I'm trying to raise kids to understand that themselves that there is such a thing as compromise and if you see it in our, our politics I don't we don't really have it compromise so has become a dirty it, it's become a dirty word Aaron um, it's so interesting because the word compromise is like a trigger word particularly you know and it's look it's I, I'm not an expert on the right wing of the Republican Party I, I have a little bit more experience with the left wing of the Democratic Party. And I can tell you it's a trigger word to suggest concession, um, defeat, caving in, leaving values on the table. And I don't know how we get away from that because it, it, there's the, I think that there are two things, right? There is there's retreat and then there's compromise. Compromise is like, hey, this bill is. I start off with 100% of what I want, and maybe I end up with 65% of what I want, and is like, is that okay? 
Is it okay to end up with 65% of what I want? Can I, can I sell that to my people? And doesn't that require everybody to kind of be grown about it? Uh, just talking about it, I want to get into more into healthcare, but the, the first thing I think about is governing versus campaigning. Okay. And, and I, by the way, I worked the 2008 presidential race. I worked in the primary for John Edwards, John Edwards, who, you know, <laughs> there's a lot there. Um, his beloved deceased wife, Elizabeth Edwards, God rest her soul, is probably the most underrated person in kind of progressive political history for what she did in that she is the person that put health care at the center of his agenda. That agenda drove that primary. Now, Barack Obama and Hillary Clinton, if you'll remember in that primary, had to be kind of dragged kicking and screaming to take the extreme position on health care. It's so funny because in the shades of history, we don't remember that. But that that's what happened. I'm not saying that, like, you know, John Edwards is like the person who is like responsible for health care. But I am saying that, like, that campaign, that process, that primary pulled us to a certain place okay so we got the campaign there which is his own ecosystem and then when you get the cam when you get the governing i don't know if people understand like what that means when you're governing and people think well we had 60 votes in the senate yeah but 15 of those 60 votes were people like ben car uh, ben nelson in nebraska they were the joe mansions of the world in west virginia they were joe lieberman in connecticut Right. They were all these moderates, Blanche Lincoln, who, by the way, they become the power sources, too. So I know that's a long wind up, but I guess, you know, that's one of my starkest recollections of that time is how the power source wasn't the polls of the party. It wasn't the Freedom Caucus and the Tea Party, and it wasn't the far left of the Democratic Party. It was the people in the middle of that Democratic caucus who at any point could go and grab a gang of five or six Republicans in the middle and be like, we're grinding everything into a halt until you do what we want. That's why Rahm Emanuel took so long to shepherd that bill through Congress. That makes me think about something that I just read in Obama's new memoir, which I just finished yesterday. He told the story about calling Claire McCaskill and really working her on the DREAM Act and saying, I need you to come down on this. I need you to vote for this DREAM Act. And she was honest with him and said, look, people in my state, they don't want me to vote for this. And if I vote for it, I might not get reelected. To which Obama, of course, said, well, what's the point of doing your job if you're only just, you know, sticking your finger out in the wind and seeing which way it blows for your voters? And it comes down to the day for the vote. Turns out, of course, the DREAM Act doesn't pass. But when they looked up the vote tally, Claire McCaskill voted for it. And when he called her up and said, why'd you do it? She said, because I couldn't do that to those young people. And when I read that story, it made me think about how McCaskill has gotten a lot of shit over the years, particularly from the left flank. And um, I think like all things to, to pull an Obama, I see both sides of it. But ultimately, the strength of either party will be having the shades of gray in it. And I'm worried about both. You know, obviously, we can just set the GOP aside because it's just gotten so extreme and so crazy. But for the Democratic Party, if we can't represent more of those shades of gray, I'm concerned, you know, because I kind of when I look back on 09 and 2010, and again, keeping in mind the audience I was really working with and serving, you know, the progressive left online, let's call a spade a spade. It was predominantly white men, young white men, young, activated white men. Yeah. Middle class, educated, educated. You know, keep that in mind. If you're like, you know what, let's just kill Obamacare because we didn't get the public option. 
it's pretty easy for you to say if you've got your own health care through your private employer. But what if you're somebody who's living without any care, health care, and you got a couple of kids? It's not that easy to say that. And so I guess, again, you know, when I think about the beauty of advocacy, and I'm not just talking about, obviously, people in the media, but like true advocates who work on the front lines, it is their job to push us further than we're comfortable in doing so. But ultimately, what I was just, you know, what I think I was discomforted by back in the early Obama years was this, this quick knee-jerk reaction to say, well, if I don't get what I want, it's just kill the whole damn thing. And it's actually gotten people to reassess Obama. Right. I mean, Obama, because of what he said, he did. He did the whole thing in his book tour, I think it was about AOC, where he talked about. Well, it wasn't AOC, actually. It was about defund the police. But I think people viewed it as a direct shot at AOC. Um, Even that bothers me because it's like I think that there's this narrative that settled in that like Democrats were campaigning on defund the police and on the Green New Deal this cycle, which they weren't. I mean, yes, there were people who vote Democrat who like who are tired of seeing their people in their community get killed and out of fear for their lives are saying like we need to consider something defund the police is a part of that but that wasn't like people who were like named Democrats on the ballot I can't think of one of them that ran on defund the police Um, in fact if you kind of look at this period that we're in right now where after the Biden victory you've kind of seen this push pull between the like the left and the center of the party I kind of think it's just really just a turf war I think the center of the party has gotten tired of the left kind of controlling the debate and I think that they saw an opportunity to knock them out and I think that's what they've done I mean Jim Clyburn I nothing but respect for that man but to suggest that like people have been campaigning on defund the police like that's not true that's just like it's just empirically not true. In fact, candidates who ran on a more progressive platform actually did better, right? Like, mm-hmm. I, you know, like, you know, if you know, people like to bring up, well, I think there was, um, gosh, there were uh, the the uh, Max Rose in Staten Island. He lost. Well, yeah, but like Connor Lamb in Pennsylvania won. So like, what? So now what? What do you what, like? What do you say about that? Do you you saying it doesn't work in Pennsylvania? It works in um, Staten Island. Um, Anyways, a lot to consider there, but I, I think the kind of central issue for me is just how these issues become co-opted. And we were very much in that moment back then where, like, you had all these issues that became co-opted. And I think we're seeing a lot of that right now. Um, I don't know if you want to add to that. I guess, you know, when, as you were talking, I was thinking a lot about labels. Yeah. And I was thinking about growing up in the South, predominantly living around a lot of Republicans. Talk about where you grew up, by the way. Talk about where you grew up. I grew up in Georgia and South Carolina, and we were usually one of the only Democrats in the neighborhood or in the town we lived in. We lived in some small towns, and then we lived in suburban Atlanta. And I also felt like I grew up in a Southern culture where you weren't really supposed to talk about politics at the dinner table. And yet I felt like we did that all the time in my house. You know, we always talked, we always read the newspaper, and we always talked about current events. And then when it came time for me to get my first summer job, I looked around and I said, Dad, there are no Democrats for me to try and get an internship or any of those like, well, you can go see where, how the dark side works. <laughs> so actually, one thing I actually never really talk about is my very first job was interning for a Republican congressman. Get out. Um, in Jonesboro, Georgia. And you know what, Joel, I can't even remember his name. But I remember, you know, obviously I was just answering the phones and filing papers and stuff. 
but I remember they uh, they asked me to take a quiz, and it, they were having everybody in the office do it, and it was sort of like a scale of from one to ten how liberal or conservative you were. And back then, Hillary was considered crazy liberal, and which is hilarious. Just, sorry, which is hilarious. Like hilarious. Hillary is a crazy li- like. Come on. <laughs> <laughs> so I take the quiz, and that's where I ended up. And then for the rest of my time, basically everyone iced me out. But, you know, I think the reason why I bring up the going back to my comment about labels is the majority of people I know who don't live in Washington, and I'm not just talking about Southerners, they just don't live their lives according to saying, I'm on the left or I'm on the right. People have core issues that they care about, and those vary. But ultimately, they just don't live in these silos. And so what do we do to fix that in our media spectrum, you know, from t- from cable TV to the papers and so forth? And then what do we do with our politics? Yeah. I'm not sure the answer to that, but that's something I was thinking of as we're talking about AOC and Clyburn and others. And I'm like, you know, again, it just feels like we're just navel-gazing all the time. That's That's so true. Um, and, and, you know, when you kind of think about the, the issue, the what you're talking about with labels, just kind of, again, going back to healthcare, the reason why that passed is because we got to a tipping point in this country where people, regardless of Republican, Democrat, you know, conservative, liberal, the cities, the, the counties, um, the, the states, they got tired of people going bankrupt from healthcare um, expenses. They got tired of people dying from pre-existing conditions. I remember we used to, you know, for the events that we would do to kind of support our work on the bill, we would have um, these families that have been impacted. There's this little boy, I can't remember his name, little African-American boy whose mom, young woman, passed away. And he basically at like age nine became like a healthcare advocate and a healthcare activist. And it's like, you shouldn't become a healthcare activist when you're nine years old. But that's where the country was. So we reached a tipping point where that wasn't a progressive liberal thing. That was a thing that I think everybody kind of realized like, hey, we gotta do something about this. Like, we gotta bring costs down, we gotta expand excess. And now you can argue about the execution of it, which I could argue for days about the fact that like, because of the tortured legislative process, we kind of ended up with a bill that wasn't, let's, you know, if me and you were in a lab, like developing like Obamacare from scratch, we probably wouldn't have come up with that bill. Um, but, you know, it's just interesting when you talk about the labeling and how that kind of alienates people. One of the reasons why I think we were successful there is because that labeling didn't apply to that moment. It applied later after people tried to sell it and talked about death panels and all that stuff, but it didn't apply to that moment. It's crazy to think about, you just said death panels, which is still <laughs> such an insane phrase. And yet, uh, we've seen so much of that rhetoric um, now and going forward. And, and back then, I think I can remember when we were all sitting there watching all these protests out our, out our window by tea partiers. And we're like, okay, this is fringe, right? They're going to do their thing for a couple of weeks. It's recess in August. Everything's kind of shut down in Washington. They'll go away. And they you know picked up steam, and then again, you add on the power of Facebook and the and and Twitter, and then it's just like this whole beast just formed, and now we feed it, and we're in this weird moment now where we're kind of you know you've got people you know who were like should I even be on these platforms, 
as an individual, but for public officials, they have to be because that's how you're going to, you know, yeah. build up your public public profile if you are unknown. And yet, there's such a uh, double-edged sword. And I felt like when AOC kind of came out right after the election and was really hammering, was it Connor Lamb? Yeah, it was Connor Lamb about his Facebook spending, which you know. I don't and know if that was accurate. Time. It feels like it wasn't accurate what she was saying. That's yeah, what it I was feels like. Curious where that data point came from. That's, yeah. That was some serious inside knowledge. Yeah. Um, however, I will also say, in the same token, she basically said blamed Facebook, and I think appropriately so, for allowing the kind of hateful vitriol that exists on the platform. So how do you square those two? Oh, I got to be on it. I got to spend a lot of money to market my campaign and get out there in front of people. And yet at the same time, I see it as evil. Oof. Yeah. We weren't dealing with that 10 years ago. We weren't, but it would be coming soon. It's the Here Comes the Pain podcast. I'm your host, Joel Payne, presented by Hip Politics Network. You are listening to a conversation that me and my friend Aaron Skinner Cochran have had so many times. I'm so glad we could bring it to you and share our uh, reflections on our career and what we've seen and where the country's been and where the country's going. Aaron, I want to, as we continue our conversation here, you know, we're talking about Facebook. We're talking about the impact of these social platforms on our body politic. I mean, let's be honest, they, that basically elected a president in 2016. And I've, I realize in all of our conversations, you and I have never really talked about that, about how this area that you have, I mean, you've mastered. This is, this is, a, this is a place of expertise in your career. How did it become used and look, put, you know, I don't want to say put Russians and all of that stuff to the side. But like, even if you take the chicanery, like it's clear Donald Trump figured out a way to leverage that platform and leveraged, you know, kind of the world online to his advantage, his political advantage. How do you contextualize that? How do you think about that? I think inherently when you have a platform that lacks any moderator, you're inevitably going to end up where we are today. And I think if whatever expectations we may have had 10, 15 years ago that the, the early days of Facebook or Twitter were going to remain sort of this idyllic area where we were talking to friends and family, we were having cogent and rational conversations, it, this was always going to happen. And we saw it even before this, if you think about it, when when news outlets started offering blog commentary, you know, you could comment on, on pieces. And it just immediately, almost immediately, just went haywire. It was always a nasty place to be, so then no one read the comments. And so it's not surprising to me that we've ended up where we are, but you can't put the genie back in the bottle. And so I think we have to decide what our goals are with it. You know, if you're a comms person or you're a member of, member running or for re-election or somebody new it's like what are you trying to get out of it because if you're trying to have a conversation it's just really yeah that that used to be the case but it's very hard to do now did trump do anything different special anything that like i mean it's sometimes it's so hard to talk about tactics with trump because you it's so hard to separate that from the man who is like loathsome but is there is there a is there an approach to that platform that he revolutionized. I think I think sometimes we are probably we don't like to like use that kind of language when we're talking about Donald Trump because it kind of seems too, a little bit too much like giving the devil his due. But are there things to learn from how Donald Trump leveraged that space to really create a movement and create a stickiness? I mean, 
these people don't want him to concede the election when it's obviously lost. Now, part of that is just nihilism, and there's just this thing that's going on there. But there is also a connection point that he has forged. I'm just curious, as someone who has spent your career doing this, just what, what do you think of that? He elevated the voices of his supporters at key moments that obviously were things that you and I would never agree with that were outrageous and sensational. But just a retweet of some random person who he could tell had the point of view of a lot of his followers made regular people who follow him feel like he's listening to me. And I think one, one, when you're risk averse in campaigns, you're thinking, we've got to, all the content that we put out on our channels for our boss has got to be stuff we create. Or when it is of other people, you know, supporters, it's stuff we've carefully crafted. We've hired a film crew, you know, maybe we've discussed before we, they get on camera what they're going to say. And Trump, with just a click of a button and obviously no strategy beneath him, was just like, oh, yeah, I agree with that person. And I don't care if they have 500 followers or 45. Woo. But what that did was make people feel a part of his movement. You know, Aaron, I, um, you know, I've obviously I've done media. I've been fortunate enough to do that. And I always think back to this. Um, I was on with uh, Chris Matthews Harbaugh. Chris Matthews, a, a past guest of the Here Comes the Pain podcast, um, one of our most popular podcasts. But Chris invited me on Harbaugh. And one of the topics we talked about that day was Peggy Noonan had put out a an op-ed. Um, it was probably mid-2019. And she talked about the political honesty of Donald Trump. And here's what she said. And I had to challenge myself to like not reject it out of hand. What she said was that his supporters saw political honesty in him that they hadn't seen in anybody else. She didn't she was very clear to say it's not personal honesty. They know he's a liar. They know he's loathsome. But everything he said he was going to do politically, he did. And that was the it's almost like that is the thing that elevated him in their minds. If you talk to a lot of Trump supporters, what I've been, let me put it like this. So you obviously were following what's happening in Georgia and we follow the local officials that have, the local Republican officials that have been asking Trump to like back off of your rhetoric and like people's lives are being threatened, et cetera. Um, the guy who kind of had the viral footage from, uh, I guess it was earlier last week, Chuck Todd on Meet the Press asked him, so you're, do you regret voting for him? He was like, no, I would still vote for him. And I was just sitting there like, so you, you clearly like understand like what, what Donald Trump is capable of and like just, again, the nihilism. But you're saying, no, but I'd still vote for him over Joe Biden. And so, that's a, again, that's a long windup, but I guess that's my way of asking like, what gives? Like, is that, is, is the online piece, is there a stickiness to that? Is it just the fact that, like, he's a winner and people just respond to winners? What is it? There's just something about, honestly, the business that you and I have been in where our jobs are really to help present a product. That was a person, right? But to shape and mold them and present the best version of them. And it's like the, a portion of America is like, yeah, I know that's what you do. But I don't want that. I want the unvarnished, you walk out the front door, you didn't expect me to be there. What do you really think? 
Stop telling me what's poll tested. Stop telling me what your advisors are whispering in your ear say. I want to know what you think. And then they think about the fact that so many of the people who've been running the last bunch of years for forever, really, are like, are, have been in Washington forever, like a Joe Biden or Hillary Clinton. And even with Obama, he'd been in the Senate. He'd been a politician before that. And so, again, it's absurd to think that people thought that Donald Trump could be one of them, considering his wealth and the grandeur of his life. And yet he had always not given a shit about what other people thought of his opinions. And I'm hard pressed right now to think about a Democrat or progressive at that presidential level who has been as unvarnished. And that doesn't mean outrageous. And it just means blunt and open. Can I posit something to you, though? Do you think that that's maybe part of Joe Biden's success? Because I actually, you know, I've done a lot of media stuff where I would talk about how I remember through the primary, I would just be like, Joe Biden is not performing very well. He clearly in the in the primary was not the best performing Democrat. Like, I respect the president elect. I'm very happy he is the 46th president of the United States. But he did not perform well in the primary. The one thing he did was I think there was an authenticity that people saw. And obviously there's other coalition politics stuff. African-American voters put their foot down in South Carolina and were like, this is the guy, everybody else get out the way. Like, that happened too. But there was an authenticity, I think, that people saw and they said, I don't care if he's not smooth. I don't care if he, you know, um, you know, is interrupted with his speech. I don't, I, don't, I don't care about that. I care about the fact that this seems like a trustworthy person. It's different than Trump because Trump is a lout and Joe Biden seems like a good, decent human who just happens to be a little um, un, uh, unrefined at times, unpolished yeah. at times. But just to your point about what you were just saying, do you see a little bit of that in Biden? Is that maybe the common thread between Trump and Biden that we might be missing? I think you're totally spot on. And I would also say I think it would have been interesting if to see if Trump had won and, you know, had four more years. If the American public would have at some point largely said, God, I really need somebody who feels my pain, who has the capacity for empathy. Because it was like the last four years were like, I don't need empathy. Screw it. I need rage. I need anger. I need you to yell from the treetops like I have been. Well, Aaron, it's degrees of authenticity. Okay. So Trump's authenticity is like the ugly American. I don't give a shit. I don't care about anything. I only care about me, America first. What's in it for me? Biden's authenticity is, God, I just don't want to fight with my neighbors about politics anymore. I just like, <laughs> I just want someone normal who like doesn't like start a fight with my like people I go to church with or people I send my kids to school with. I just want some normalcy. And there's an authenticity to both. It's two sides of the same coin, but the authenticity gene is both there. That, that's what I see. And you think about, even though people are going to say, look, Joe Biden can't maybe relate to me about losing a job or going through poverty, but the kind of personal pain he's been through, nobody wants that. Nobody wishes that on somebody. And so just the fact that he can feel a kind of acute pain that so many Americans are feeling in other respects, lost from COVID, lost from jobs, he's going to be able to step into their shoes and offer that to them. And I hope, and I think that's one thing I hope, Kind of hang my hope hat on is that 
maybe, just maybe, we can bring some Trump people over who will have gone through hell and back during COVID and go, all right, this guy, he kind of sees what I'm going through. He's making me feel like not only is he going to try and fix it, but he also feels my pain. And that's so important. It's like that age old phrase. It's like, nobody remembers what you said. They remember how, how you make you feel. feel. Yeah. Maya Angelou. That's right. So here comes the pain podcast. I'm your host, Joel Payne. We're presented by hip politics network. Um, I am joined today by Aaron Skinner Cochran of ice coffee, please. Aaron has been so kind with me to allow me to bother her and, Put a microphone in her face and ask her a bunch of questions. We are wrapping up our conversation in our last few minutes here, Aaron. I want to talk about what lies ahead of us, okay? So right now as we talk, it's mid-December. It's just getting cold outside. Um, normally we would, you know, I mean, yes, we've got Joe Biden naming his cabinet and um, doing all of that type of stuff. Um, but I think that there's still a little bit of uncertainty in the air given the fact that we have this president that's like clearly, I don't know if he's going to go out kicking and screaming, but he's not going to go out with any sense of pride or any sense of dignity. Um, There's a lot in front of us in Congress. Mitch McConnell is very likely still going to be the majority leader in the Senate. Is Joe Biden going to be able to charm him into um, any kind of like comedy, any kind of like working across the aisle? Just what lies ahead? I, I, it's funny. It, what seems to have happened in this election is people took a deep exhale when Joe Biden was declared the winner. It's like, whew, finally. Okay, now we can breathe. And then, actually, if we take a step back, and we and I think we're kind of trying to figure out, okay, well, what's the next two, four years going to look like? Is it still going to be a lot of fighting? Are people going to come together? Are we going to be arguing about things like cabinet appointments as opposed to, like, whether our president is racist or not? That, you know, like, I, I, I guess, what do you see, not just as a former political pro, but like as a mom, as someone who watches this stuff? I think on the, my, if I'm glass half empty, I'd say we're going to be patching some holes. We're going to be putting some band-aids on things and hoping those are waterproof ones. The optimist in me says we're going to get things into a decent shape by the end of these four years when I think about our economy. And we might have taken on some one or two big structural things. You know, as a parent, thought a lot about how screwed up our childcare system is. Thought a lot about the lack of support we provide teachers. And there's a lot of work we need to be doing with our education system. So I'd like to see some chips, you know, like we chip away at those big issues. What I, I think is going to be kind of really hard are those like the climate change stuff. Are we really going to be able to focus attention on something so important as that? But right now, again, still feels so far away. So again, I think we I vacillate between thinking we're going to patch some holes and otherwise we're going to right the ship and we're going to chip away at some big issues. And Biden is going to govern fundamentally in a different way. Um, he's It's going to feel, you know, I was trying to compare what I expect I think it's going to feel a lot like Bill Clinton in terms of, you know, and again, that's a that's a loaded comparison. Um, I'm, I'm more talking about the type of leadership style. This is, again, a creature of D.C. And again, creature is not meant as a judgment. It's just like a statement of fact. Joe Biden is a creature of D.C. He's been here forever. He knows everyone. He knows the Senate. He knows what that chamber is like. He understands D.C. inside out. He knows every watering hole where people, where reporters go out for drinks. 
it feels like his cabinet is going to be um, a lot of insiders. Some people might call that swampy. I'm going to say it's going to be a lot of insiders. It's going to be a lot of people who kind of understand the levers of power. That's good and bad, right? Like, I think there's a little bit of a whiplash away from Trump, right? Trump's thing was kind of like, I want all outsiders and new people and people who have who don't know how to do stuff. Biden is like, I want people who know D.C. and people who know things and know science and stuff. And so there's going to be this like frenetic whiplash that happens. But I do think that it's going to feel a lot like um, Bill Clinton's presidency in that you're going to have a lot of establishment Democrats in power. Um, I don't know if it's going to feel as transformational as the Obama years. And look, look, there's a lot to that, right? I mean, Barack Obama was a historic candidate and historic president. He passed historic legislation. Um, I would argue that the COVID relief bill that Joe Biden, hopefully, maybe it'll be passed before he takes office, but it'll definitely be passed shortly thereafter. Um, that will be historic and that most people would be relying on that as a lifeline. Side note, it's a travesty. It is absolutely, it is, honestly, it is a shame. It is a pox on everyone, mostly on the president and mostly on Mnuchin and the people around him that that thing has, you know, kind of stood there and not gotten passed, but it's a travesty. I mean, when you just think about people suffering, I'm fortunate I'm able to do my job from home. So many people aren't. Um, it just to leave people without cover like this, it's it's honestly, it's one of the like shames of our lifetime. Um, Absolutely. But anyways, I think it's going to feel a lot like Bill Clinton. Um, one of my friends jokingly said, President Kerry. <laughs> <laughs> I think that's pretty apt. Yeah. It is. Again, what does that mean for the left flank? Oh, you know, saw, let's finish there. Saw, let's finish there. Yes. Yeah, I mean, when I saw that AOC said, I'm as likely to, you know, run for office again as I am to basically set up a homestead, I thought, oh, okay. Damn. All right. Well, that's, again, girls being honest. She's being honest, I mean, but I will say, she's ambitious, and AOC wants to be president. She's not, you want to know why I knew she wants to be president? When, when it was clear Bernie Sanders was not going to be the nominee, and when she very deftly stepped away from that, stepped towards the mainstream of the party and became a part of the solution, I was like, oh, she wants a political future. So that was interesting to me there. The other thing is a friend pointed out to me as well is how she lined up on Israel. She does. She is not bucking the party apparatus on that. And that tells you that AOC actually like has a future and wants to be a player. Now, she's going to do all the hysteronics and all that type of stuff, but like... She wants to be at the center of, like, the, she doesn't want to be a flame out. She doesn't want to just be like, hey, I'm just a random progressive. I'm Alan Grayson. No, she doesn't want to be that. I'm Anthony Weiner. She doesn't want to be that. She wants to be, like, a real player in the party and, like, somebody who's really at the fabric of the party. Those things tell me that. Um, That's interesting. But, like, progressives I, generally, Aaron, like, how, okay, how, is the honeymoon already over? Let me ask that. Oh, yeah, I feel like, well, as soon as he became the party's nominee, they're like, oh, God. You know, it's like the, the balloon, like the air was just like shriveling out. But, I mean, the truth is, right, I mean, I would get skewed for the, this if I was still in the job with Reed, but it's like they're never happy, so they're always, you know, pissed off. Yeah. And um, please go ahead and continue to be pissed off because part of that is why you keep pushing for good things. But I do think um, it's kind of about setting 
setting expectations like you just said for this next four years because if we assume like it sounds like you're feeling and maybe where I'm feeling too that this this ain't going to be all about transformation so we don't get really excited about what does happen whereas with Obama it was like oh my god we're gonna have the moon and the stars yeah and of course that didn't happen totally and Obama talks about this a lot in his memoir where he's like well where did this come from now we could talk about that but it's like people have these unbelievable expectations and it's like if somebody's going in right now telling Biden that they want a new space program they're going to be like can I check your shit at the front door like (laughs) let's get our house in order first you know yeah but if you're able to do some kind of exciting stuff it's big and, and you know the kind of new ideas that we haven't seen in a while well that'll just be icing on the cake Aaron you know in our entire conversation you know one name that has not come up and it's shocking to me Kamala Harris it's so, it's so interesting yeah, I'm to me. You're wearing my Kamala sweatshirt. You're wearing right your now. Kamala shirt, right? And I'm not saying that as like a demerit to Kamala Harris. I'm saying she is. There is so much on. It is so interesting to me. I would argue to you that the single most important person to influence, the single most important world to influence for the next three years in politics, is Kamala Harris and the people around her. Because I think it's clear Biden has said he will be a transitional president. I'm not going to say it's 0% chance that he will run again in 2024, but it's it's low. And I think Kamala Harris, it, this will be such a unique vice presidency, unlike any we've ever seen. It's not Al Gore, because Bill Clinton, like, really was only a lame duck, again, like, the last year. Al Gore had to take a back seat to him. You could argue Joe Biden's going to be a lame duck. God, like... Two years in? Two years in? So it's interesting to me that her name has not come up in our entire conversation and she might be the most important person in progressive Democratic Party politics. And even though she has a high rating from all the progressive groups, I don't think most progressives think of her as like the real deal, the genuine article. And that might be to her benefit. She might not be the VP nominee, the VP choice, if that was the case. But that's interesting to me. Gosh, you're so right. And, you know, I think about this. I won't name any names in my family, but um, some of the people closest to me in my family sit on the anarchist wing of the Democratic (laughs) Party. And they would never, ever vote for Kamala Harris because of her criminal justice record. Unbelievable. You know, she's I think the opportunity she has for her own self-image, right, over the next three years is how is she going to shape that and mold that? And, And it's not just about her race and her gender, but it is, it's also her age, right? The vitality she has, the, the tenure she can have. I mean, she's like an Obama that it's like, okay, then she can go be president after this. And then what's she going to do, you know? She might be the most significant person in politics for the next 15 years. Um, and we might be just seeing the beginning of her ascent. Um, Aaron Skinner Cochran, you are a gem. You are wonderful. You are so kind to give me an hour of your time. Uh, I, you know, I love our conversations, you know, I miss working with you, but I'm so glad that we could do this and we could talk. I texted you the other day. I was like, Hey, we got to put one of these things on tape and we got to like, let people see how we get after it. So thank you so much for making time. You, I'm, I'm okay. I'm okay. Just don't tell everybody all the stories of how terrible, um, of a, of a colleague I am, but, uh, but no, Aaron, you're the best. Thank you so much. Um, Aaron, once again, it's, uh, your company that you started is Ice Coffee, please. Give us, just give me a little something about, about your company and what it's all about. You were kind enough to have me on one of your platforms, one of your, you know, kind of podcast 
audio, um, you know, collections that you put together. Tell me a little bit about it. Well, my business partner and I, we really build websites and help develop brands that are mission driven. So we're working largely with nonprofits in Washington, D.C., and as well as around the country. So we work with people who really want to make the world a better place and have a, are struggling, though, to tell their story online. And so that's what we do. It's been a lot of fun. It's been three years in the making, taking everything we've learned from government and nonprofits. And we're teeny and small for a reason. And that leads us to have a little bit of time to do things like this. Joel, you're one of my favorite people. Thank you I for can't, having me. I can't me. think of a better storyteller. Aaron Skinner Cochran. It's the Here Comes the Pain podcast. I'm your host, Joel Payne. We'll be back with you soon. Until then, God bless and take care. Take care. Bye.